Amen. So tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 19. And I remember when I was in middle school, I remember sitting in a movie theater and seeing the most amazing man my young mind could comprehend. His name was Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow. You guys remember him? And when you're first introduced to him, you're just like, wow. And if you remember, the way you're introduced to him, he's a man who's got nothing. He's had everything taken away from him. He's left on this island to die. He's got nothing. And the way that he ends, the way that his story ends is the black pearl, the thing that he's wanted his entire life. It's his pride and his joy. The, it's the possession. The trilogy ends with him in a dinghy all by himself with nothing, just like he started. And it's just this bookend on his life to where the audience would look and go, that silly pirate. He's the best pirate I've ever seen. He's never going to change. Like that's, you're supposed to look at him like that and go, wow. And if you remember Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump opens with a feather falling from the sky and it sits, at, it sits on the ground and he's waiting for a bus. And he's going to get on the bus and he's going to go, he's waiting for it to go see the most important thing in the whole world to him. And it's a woman who could never quite receive his love. And then the book, the movie ends with him waiting for another bus with his son and waiting for the bus to come pick him up and take him to school is this is now the most important thing in his entire life. The center of his life has completely changed. And you're supposed to end going, oh, he's so cute. And he's, wow, look how he's grown. And it's amazing. It's these bookends, right? And you have, um, Cap, you have Captain Phillips. Captain Phillips opens and his wife is talking to him and she says, hey, is it going to be okay? And the story ends with a medic talking to, to Captain Phillips saying, hey, it's going to be okay. You know, it's these bookends and these stories to get you to go, wow, a lot has happened in a short amount of time. To make you look at where's this person come from, it's to call back all these things he's been through, where are we at now, how did we get here? Whether the growth that they've come through or, oh, they're just never going to change. Well, today, chapter 19, it, it's got a bookend for Saul where it's going to, in a way, kind of close a chapter on him. We're going to get to see how far he has come and what's come of him. He was the guy. Israel demanded a king. They were given Saul. And Saul had so much potential. Saul was, he was the guy. God gave him his spirit. But he chose to rebel. He chose to disobey God. And as a result, he loses the kingdom. He misses out on all that God has had for him. And what we've seen over these several chapters, nine chapters since he's been called to be king, 10 chapters, is that he's unfit. He's not the right guy. He doesn't honor God. He doesn't care about what God wants to do. He wants to live life the way he wants to live. He wants to lead the way that he wants to lead. And so now there's this new kid. His name's David. And David's not yet king. Saul still occupies the throne. And while David is going to become king soon, Saul is using this time to really manipulate and maneuver and do whatever he can to, to hold on to power. And he's really envious of this young man. And so Saul, and what we're going to see in this chapter is just a man unraveling. And so here's how the chapter opens. 1 Samuel 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. So the chapter opens with the highest ranking member 
of God's covenant people openly talking about killing the next person that God has called to be king. He's not being quiet about it. Like in the earlier chapter, last chapter, it's in his head, kind of. It's, it's more private. It's, man, I really, I, I want to get away to get rid of this guy. I'm going to have him go fight Philistines. I'm going to stack the deck against him. That way he'll get taken care of and he's going to be out of my hair. God gives him victory in those things. And now Saul is just enraged. Saul is now losing his mind. And he's talking openly about, I want this kid dead. Talking to Jonathan about it and all of his servants. It's not private anymore. He just wants to get rid of him. So any shame that he might have about talking about the next future person that God has chosen has left. And so the first verse continues, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. So Saul's just, Saul's, or sorry, Jonathan, Saul's son, is a super good friend. He's like, hey, I got your back. And I think Jonathan really is just thinking there's a misunderstanding. There's got to be a misunderstanding, a miscommunication. Hey, that's not my dad. Listen, you go, you, you hide. I'm gonna, you, you, I even want you to feel near us. So maybe you can overhear. I'm going to talk to my dad about you. I'm going to figure out what's going on. Hey, let, let me just handle it. Maybe there's a miscommunication. Maybe there's a misunderstanding. Best case scenario, we can all laugh about this later. All right? And then here's how verse four goes. And Jonathan, he gets out, his dad out in the field. He spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David because he's not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And so Jonathan, he's, he's really warning Saul. He's saying, hey, this opposition you have against David, remember, it, it won't just be against David because it's not just that David struck down the Philistines. It's also the Lord brought a great salvation through all of Israel through this young man. If you're in opposition against David, you're also in opposition of God's redemptive plan, of God's work, what God is doing. He's just trying, Dad, you're king of Israel, God's people. This isn't you. This isn't what you want to do. Don't, don't sin against him. Don't, don't draw innocent blood. What are you doing here? And verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Saul changes his mind, and he swears an oath to the Lord. All right, I'm not going to try to kill him. We'll see how far that goes, how valuable his word is. And so here's something you can't help but notice about Jonathan. As you're looking at Jonathan, as we see more of him, Jonathan is just a really good dude. Like he just really cares about his friend. He sees something that's unjust and he's not just going to sit by passive. He's going to get involved. He's, he has to mediate. He's going to go, well, hey, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to figure out what's going on. 
I, I, I'm not just going to sit by and watch this happen. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to say, hey, is there some miscommunication? Hey, you need to know he's not done anything wrong against you. I don't know where this is coming from, but you can't do it anymore. He reminds all that God has done through David to Saul. Jonathan's a really good dude. As you watch him, you go, this guy's awesome. And something you can't help but notice about Saul as you learn more and more about Saul is he's really not a good dude. Like Jonathan is stellar and Saul is just a bummer. He's envious. He's manipulative. He's murderous. He's choosing to actively rebel against God while calling himself the leader of God's people. There's this clear contrast the Bible's given us between these two people, Jonathan and his dad, Saul. And it's brought up and it's made very evident and clear and it really, really matters. Because something I think we can so often forget is it doesn't really matter how important your dad was or how screwed up your dad was, or how broken your parents were, that brokenness that comes from your parents, you don't have to continue living out. Whatever patterns, whatever systems, whatever generational stuff your parents may have been in, God's made a way for you to get out of it. And there's this thing, and uh, it happens a lot with divorced kids. It's called uh, parental alienation, where what happens is one parent badmouths another parent. And so whether it's that the, the, the this mom or the dad is talking about the mom or the dad to the kids trying to poison the well to make them not want mom or dad, so they'll work in their favor. So they'll say, you know, they're, they're just lazy or they're, they're ugly or they're stupid. They're, they're always a failure. They don't care. They're violent. They're addicted. They're, they're bad. Whatever it is, we'll try to manipulate or alienate the other parents called parental alienation. And kids who have been in really messy divorces where this happens, there's come out to be a lot of long-term psychological damage where those kids end up themselves having obviously a lot of resentment towards both sides of their parents, but they also end up with a lot of low self-esteem and a lot of self-hatred and a lot of self-blaming. Because what happens is the kids know I'm 50% that person and 50% that person. And they've both convinced me that the other person's bad. They've both convinced me that the other person's broken. And the other person can't fix their issues. And they're always going to be stuck in their issues. And nothing's going to ever change. It's just in their blood. It's in their DNA. Well, now it's in mine. And so these kids grow up and they just go, well, I'm broken. I, I'm messed up. I'll never be able to fix things or change things. And even if there was no divorce in your past or in your history or with your kids, with your parents or grandparents, whatever, something that you know is as a parent, you're the window through which the kids view and see the world that they're going to look at you and they're going to see the way that you handle conflict and the way that you handle stress, the way that you deal with issues concerning money with your spouse, the way that you self-medicate, the way that they're going to look at your, your career, your aspirations. They're going to, by you and the way that you talk about people and do things, know this is what it looks like to have a good house. This is an acceptable house. This is what it looks like to have a non-acceptable house and a non-acceptable way of living. This is what it looks like to have a good spouse. So it looks like to have a bad spouse. This is what it looks like to have a good job, and this is what it looks like to have a bad job. And we're the window through which they view the world and see this is how things are done, this is how things are not done. And some of us haven't been given a very good view out of that window. And one of the great things the Bible tells us and is really demonstrated through Jonathan here is it doesn't really matter who your parents are. God can make a way for you out of that. That when you follow Jesus, you become a new creation in him. That, that your old habits your old stuff, your old passions, your old desires, you can give that up to Jesus and now you get 
a new perfect father. You may have had a good dad. You may have had an absent dad. You may have had a bad dad. But now you get a perfect dad that's going to give you new passions, new desires, new habits, a new way forward. And you don't have to keep living in the generational stuff. You can have a new way out of it and emulate for your kids. Hey, this is what right living looks like. This is how you stand up for a friend. This is how you say, hey, no, that's sinful. Remember how that person's always come through for you. I know that there's stuff going on in your mind, but David's a good guy. So when you look at Jonathan and you see that he's got just a cruddy dad, I think it's supposed to give us hope. And we say, you know, there's stuff that maybe I was born into. I don't have to continue that. I can break away from that. I don't have to keep living that way. I don't have to deal with my problems that way. I don't have to lash out like that. I don't have to be abusive. I don't have to be addicted. I don't have to be an alcoholic. I don't have to do the things that my dad did, how my dad coped, my mom or whatever. I can follow God and say, no, I'm not trapped in that. I don't have to be trapped in my parents' wickedness. And so really, with Jonathan, what you see is a young man who's amazingly spiritually outgrown his father. He's the king of God's people, but he's really drawn, I think, drawn closer to God than Saul ever did. He says, Dad, what are you doing? This isn't what God has for you. And so Saul, he seems to listen to his son for a moment, but quickly that changes like we see in verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Here's the picture we keep getting of Saul. This is a man who is unfit to lead God's people. Here's the picture you keep getting of David. He's come to do two things, kick Philistine butt and chew bubble gum. And he's all out of bubble gum. All right, like it doesn't even give you the war. It just tells you there was war again. David went out, it was handled. Like David's just the man. The story that we're getting with Saul is this man is unfit to be king. This man keeps falling into rebellion against God. And then whenever David shows up, there's just victory. Ever since you get Goliath, you're just like, I like this guy. This guy goes to war and he comes back with body parts. Like he's the man. He comes back with trophies. The new leader is fit to defend God's people against God's enemy, to lead them. He's the right guy. And so God is moving through God's chosen people and the fruit is really evident of it. And you only get this little snippet of it. It's almost, it's marginal. He, there's a big war. David went out, killed lots of Philistines, gave him a great blow. And then it just moves on to the other drama of the day. It's gonna keep telling us about Saul. And so maybe in your life, sometimes there are things that we do that we feel like God has called us to do. And it feels like this is the right thing. This is what I need to do. And it, it doesn't really get a lot of attention. It doesn't seem like a lot of people notice it. It doesn't seem really important. Might be how David feels about that battle. He's like, I remember that battle. That was a big deal. Know that God keeps score. Even if it doesn't seem like your community notices the little things that you're doing to push God's kingdom forward, God is watching. God's seeing the fruit of it. And when it needs to come out, God will have it come out. God might be preparing the way for something to happen like he is for David, where Saul's in the wrong place, David's gonna be in the right place, and it's just establishing who David's gonna be and how David trusts in the Lord in the midst of battle and hardship and in victory. And so verse nine, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the liar. This is just a side thing. Why do they keep giving Saul spears? I don't know where he keeps getting these things. I wouldn't trust him with them anymore. You know, like how many times do you trust a guy with something he's going to throw it at you? This is me. 
Verse 10, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image. So notice that word image. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at, the, at its head and covered it with his clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came, behold, the image, there's that word image, was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So that word image, if you have a different translation of your Bible, um, it could be ephod. You could see it as idol. It's a word teraphim, which you might recognize from earlier in Samuel or even in Judges. It's a household God. It's not something God's people are supposed to have. But it is this household God in this home. And Saul says, hey, I want David dead. He sends messengers to go get him dead. Michael says, David, you got to leave. And she puts in his bed this household idol, some goat's fur for a head and covers with a blanket, kind of like a middle schooler sneaking out of the house. <laughs> right? That's, no, I never did that in middle school. And so <laughs> sets it up like that and, and apparently tricks some of the messengers and they leave. And you might be wondering, well, what, what is a household God doing in David's house? Because that seems pretty inconsistent with David's character. I think, what, I think it's Michael's. I think what happened is he married the king's daughter and there's a strange power dynamic in their relationship. And hey, I don't think we should have that in our house. Hey, I don't like being told what to do. You know, and now he's got this household God there. But I don't think it's David's. And what I think happens and we're, what we're gonna see is Michael, she's like the feminine counterpart, counterpart to her father, Saul. Where Saul... You have lots of hope for him. You think, man, this guy's going to be awesome. And he's rebellious to the Lord. He doesn't do what God wants to do and lead the people spiritually. And as a result, he loses a kingdom. What we see with Michael is as we get to know her more and ultimately it culminates in 2 Samuel is you see Michael comes to despise David and hate David. And she's spiritually rebellious against the Lord. And instead of losing out on a kingdom like Saul did, she loses out on a family. She never has kids. It's a bummer for them, but you see the same story played out with both of them. And where David, what we're going to see, it's in Psalm 59. We'll turn there in a second. David, he writes a prayer where he's saying, this is the one I trust in. This is who I hope in. This is going to save me. This is going to protect me. Michael, who does she trust in? This idol. This, when she's in uh, hot water, when things are rough, she goes and grabs the idol and, and says, this thing's going to hide my husband. This is going to protect him. But here's what David says about it. Psalm 59. If you have your Bible, you should turn there because it's fascinating. This is David's point of view. This is how David is seeing things happen. It's the Psalm, the prayer that he writes as this is happening to him. It's Psalm 59. And objectively, this is a bad night for David, right? Like if my father-in-law sent messengers to my house to come and kill me 
and my wife had to sneak me out a window so that I would survive, that's top three bad nights in my life, right? Like maybe for some of us, maybe it's just top five, but that's a bad night. It's objectively bad, but here's what David writes. This is what he pens. This is what he prays. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression of sin or my, of mine, O oh Lord. Hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't even deserve this. I'm just trying to do the right thing. I just came back from war. Things were going well. I was playing some music and now everyone wants me to die. Verse four, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back. This is apparently a multi-day situation. This isn't just a one day and moving on. This is each evening they come back and they're howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. I think they're probably looking around for David. Hey, anyone seen David? We're here from Saul. We got to find this kid. These are, they think they're untouchable men. Yeah, they've come to do a job. They got no one to fear. There's, there's no repercussion coming for them. Verse eight, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. There are people in powerful positions who do wickedly evil things and they think they're beyond touch. And you know what? From human's perspective, they might be. But we have a God who sees all and we have a God who's in control and a God who will rightly judge. And when you're able to trust God with those heavy things, it makes your life a lot easier. And you know, oh, God's laughing at that. You think no one can touch you? You think no one sees that? Oh, phew. okay. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O Lord, are my fortress. Verse 10. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield. He doesn't want the enemies to die. He wants them to be an example. I don't let the people forget. Verse 12, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. He knows when morning comes, it's really a bummer night. This is really bad. When morning comes, I'm gonna sing to my God of his steadfast love, how he's come through for me, how my God has protected me, how my God has provided for me, how my God has always come through. And I think when you're in really hard situations in your life, like David is in right now, there's two ways that people can run. You can either run to God like David does, 
God, you're my strength. You're my fortress. You're the one I can run to. Your word declares that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and he's safe. I'm going to choose to run to you and seek protection and know that you're in control. You see things that I don't, that you're just, that you're good and that you see the wickedness and you're not going to let it go. You can run to God or you can run from God. And there's a lot of people who they say, well, I was a Christian. I did the church thing. I tried God and it didn't work. You ever heard someone say, I tried Jesus and it didn't work? I think what happens is really difficult, hard things come and they're faced with that decision on where they're going to run and they see something online or they read a book and they're posed with really, there's three questions I hear atheists. It's not questions, it's there's three kind of proses they give. And one is this, when you look at the evil in the world and you see real hardship in your life and you believe in a good God, well, then there's only really three, three things that make sense. Either God isn't powerful, and God can't fix your problems. He sees it, he hates it, but he can't do anything about it. Or maybe God's not around. Maybe God doesn't see it. God doesn't see what's going on. He's powerful enough and he is good, but he's just not present. He's not seeing what's going on with you. And the last one is maybe God isn't good. Maybe God doesn't care. So those are the three things that I see atheists give or people who used to be Christians or called, they say they say they used to be Christians and they say, well, either God isn't powerful, God isn't present, or God doesn't care. That's what they throw out. These are the three things. These are the three arguments for, okay, this is why there's evil. This is why you're in distress. This is why bad things are going on. And if you believe that, then you say, well, I tried that Jesus thing and it, man, it didn't work. He wasn't present. He wasn't powerful. He didn't care about me. There's no nuance in that. There's no like, well, maybe God is working something. Like maybe Saul is unraveling at this point to get a nation to go, this is crazy. This man is a lunatic. God is setting up a new king to be in power and to be in position. And God's king is trusting in him. And even though the whole system seems to be bad and corrupt and upside down, God's working something. People who believe that often, who believe that, well, okay, God must not be powerful. God must not be good. God must not be present. They often come to that conclusion because they believe, well, it's my good works that save me. You know, and I, I know I beat this horse to death because I, I, I really think that it can happen so often with Christians is that we say, I've served God. I've done the right thing. God, I've, I put in my time. I, I got in the ring. I got in there with Goliath. I stood up for you and no one else would. God, I'm I'm serving in the king's house for a man who hates me because I know that's what you want me to do. God, I'm fighting with my wife all of the time over the idols that she brings in her home. And now this is what's going on? Really? I'm running for my life? This doesn't seem right. I've tried this God thing and it doesn't work. And you could almost hardly blame David for that, but that's not where David runs. You look at someone like Joseph where Joseph gets sold into slavery and then Joseph gets forgotten in prison and 16 years go by of him just being forgotten and beaten and and in servitude. And at some point you'd almost expect Joseph to go, you know, I really tried this God thing and it keeps getting me worse and worse and worse. Where is God in all of this? But God's working something the entire time to get God's people where he needs them to be. And so what you see with both Joseph and with David is those who say, okay, God is my refuge. God is my strength. God's going to come through for me. God's going to deliver. God's going to provide. Those people, when they come out of their hardship and their distress, they're able to be a beacon of hope for all the people in their community. 
that when people who have wronged him, like Joseph, when his brothers come in and they, they realize that's the guy that we beat up, that's the guy that we said died, that's the guy, and they don't even know about all the hard things that happened when he was a slave and when he was in prison and forgotten. They recognize their brother and they go, oh, he's gonna kill us. And he's got the opportunity for revenge. Instead, he becomes a beacon for hope, not just for them, but the entire nation of Israel. And with David, David's gonna write psalm after psalm after psalm about a God who provides and comes through and delivers. And he's gonna become someone who says, oh no, I know my God. I know my God can be trusted. And then when his life gets completely flipped upside down later, when his son betrays him and tries to take the throne away from him, he'll do the same thing. He'll go, I know my God came through for me in the past. I bet you he's gonna come through for me in the future. There's two ways you can go when you're in distress. You can either run from God or you can run to God. And there's this song that right now, it's my favorite song. It's by Elevation Worship called Graves into Gardens. It's my favorite because the bridge is this. It's saying of our God, you turn mourning, this, this brutal, difficult, hard thing that I'm going through, this distress, this pain, this depression, you turn mourning into dancing. You, you give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highway, into highways. You're the only one who can. And when you recognize that, if you really believe that, that all the bad in my life, all the difficulty, all the pain, all the failures, I serve a God that I can give that to and he can take the pain and the failure and the heartache and turn it into an opportunity for dancing and victory and celebration and joy and dancing. If you believe that you have a God like that, doesn't that make the hard times much more bearable? You okay, God, I'm so excited to see how you're going to turn this around. I'm in the lowest point of my life right now. Thank you, Lord. I'm so excited to see how you flip this around. I'm going to run to you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to watch how you come through in this. It changes everything if you believe you have a God like that. You, you're, you turn my shame into glory. And so verse 18 Here's how the story continues. Back in 1 Samuel, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped. He got away from Saul. However long that took, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And, and he and Samuel went and lived at Naalith. So David, things aren't working with Saul, so he runs to church. He goes to Ramah. He knows where Samuel is. He's going to run to Samuel. He's going to talk to Samuel. And the guy that he knows, hey, you told me God was going to be king. Uh, the previous guy's coming after me. He's trying to throw hands. Well, you got to help me. Verse 19. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naalith in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So Samuel sends messengers. I've heard he's at Naalith and Ramah. Go get David. And when they show up, they come to church and they see God's people worshiping and Samuel as head over the worshipers and the messengers who come in to do evil and wickedness, they come into church and the spirit of God rushes on them and they begin prophesying. They begin worshiping. And verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. So he sends a second group of people. 
And the same thing happens. They show up to church and they start prophesying. The Spirit of God rushes upon them and they start worshiping. And Saul, finishing verse 21, sent messengers again a third time and they also prophesied. The third time, the second time messengers don't come back. So for a third time, he sends messengers to go. They come into church. They start prophesying. They start worshiping God. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different outcome. We're watching Saul go insane. We're watching a man at the end of his rope completely unravel. This guy that the nation had such hope for. He's going to be our king. He's going to look like all the other nations. He's a giant. He's the man. We're finally going to have one. Is now completely unraveling. And the story is really supposed to be funny, especially with what happens next, where Saul decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. Verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Secu. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naalith and Ramah. And he went there to Naalith in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naalith in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Samuel also among the prophets? There's so many funny things I could say. It's funny, but it's also really tragic that Saul, he shows up, and this is really the bookend for him, I think. He shows up, and he begins prophesying and worshiping, and the Spirit of God comes on him, and he takes off his clothes, and now the king is lying naked on the floor. And the community says, is Saul also among the prophets? Have you heard that before? You recognize that line, is Saul also among the prophets? Because if you go all the way back to chapters 9 and 10, when you're first introduced to Saul. Here's what happens then. When we first see Saul, like the first time you see Captain Jack Sparrow, or the first time you see Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips or in Forrest Gump, first time we see him, he comes to Ramah. But he's looking for his donkeys. He comes to Ramah. Then he comes to a well and he asks, hey, where's Samuel? And then he prophesies with the group of prophets and the spirit of God comes upon him and invests him with authority and establishes him as king. And in that moment of prophesying, the community says, is Saul also among the prophets? And they're wowed. What a guy we have. God has given us such a good king, such a good guy that we can trust. Yes. But now, 10 chapters later, nine chapters later, you see this guy you had such high hopes for. You see him come to Ramah. He goes to a well and he asks for directions. He prophesies with a group of prophets and the people scorn him and mock him saying, is Saul also among the prophets after God's spirit comes upon him and takes away all of his clothes? And now he's just this man who's completely falling apart and completely unraveling. And even in the midst of all of this happening, I think this moment, if you look at the word prophesy, it's, 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 a, it's a strange word. It's a, it's a positive word. Like it's a good thing. There's, a, there's an e evil spirit that God has sent 
on Saul previously to make things hard for him, I think to get him to repent. And the David in his room and playing the music, totally. But this prophesying situation that God's spirit comes on, I think it's a good thing. And I think it's even in this moment that God is giving Saul an opportunity where he's saying, Saul, don't you see how good I am? Don't you see how I can meet your every need? Don't you see how I can come through for you? Don't you see all that you could have been? Come on, turn around. Come on, don't keep going this way. Come on, you don't have to keep living this way. I think even right here, God is being merciful and gracious to Saul, giving him one more chance. Hey, let's do a a public mockery. Like You'll be shamed in front of people. That stuff you're doing is silly. It's insane. Knock it off. I think even right here, God is being patient with Saul and giving him a chance to change direction, a chance to repent, a chance to come back to the Lord, not be king. He lost his opportunity at that. He's been disqualified. He's operating as head of state until the next king is going to be in place and established. But still he can turn to him. Still he can turn back to God, repent, and be one of God's people and operate that way and, and move forward with David in a healthy way. But as we see in the next chapters, there's no such luck. That Saul's going to continue to fall apart. But like bookends, I think this is almost closing a chapter on Saul. Like, man, you had your opportunity. We had so much hope for you. We had so much in store for you. We were so excited for you. What a bummer. What a bummer for Saul. But the same, same thing is true for you and me, that we can be living lives that have been just a bummer. We are making decisions today that we just go, man, that's such a bummer. If that was brought out in front of everyone here at church, I'd feel like I was naked on the floor and everyone would be making fun of me. Just the things I said today, the thoughts I had, the th- situation that I had with my wife this last week, whatever it is that's going on in our lives, how we handle stuff with our kids, and we go, oh, that would be so shameful if that was brought out right now. We have a God who even right now gives opportunities to us all the time to say, okay, God, I'm not going to do that anymore. I want to give that to you. I don't want to keep living that way. I don't want to keep pursuing that person like he's an enemy. I don't want to keep objectifying other people. I don't want to keep telling those lies. I don't want to keep dealing with that shame or that guilt. God, I want to give it to you. I want to trust you with it. God, can you take that from me? Can you turn my shame into glory? God, can you turn my brokenness and my heartache into victory? God, can you take this low spot that I'm in? Can I give it to you? Can I trust it with you? We do something good with it. I believe we have a God who's faithful to do so. And so Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the only one who can. I'm so thankful that you are the one that we can put our trust in and our hope in. And I'm so thankful that the way your grace works is not like how anything in the world works. That I don't have to earn it. I don't have to trade you for it. I don't have to do enough good things for you to turn my life around, for you to give me hope and healing and a path forward. But instead, all I have to do is say, okay, God, I trust you. I'm going to follow you. Even though this is hard, this is difficult, even though it feels like the world is against me, I'm going to turn and follow you and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to expect to see you do great things because you're the only one who can. So Jesus, we're so thankful to be called your people and we're excited to see what you do in our community even this week. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.